Father, as we open your scripture today, I pray that your Holy Spirit may just speak to us in new and unique ways. We thank you for this day. We love you, Lord. Amen. Well, the, this idea of history, um, you know, someone once said that if we don't learn from history, we have a tendency to repeat it. I, I think that's true about uh, us as individuals. I think that's probably true about us, perhaps as a, as a culture. Um, but I, I also think that we see evidence of that in Scripture, that there are biblical principles, there are themes throughout the narrative that it seems like God continues to repeat the lessons, repeat the lessons, repeat the lessons, that as, as humans, sometimes we have a tendency to be kind of slow on the uptake. And uh, we're going to look at a parable today, and I think there's a couple of principles here that uh, is one of those instances that, that Jesus continues to try to communicate uh, some important lessons. So if you open your Bibles, we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 20. Uh, most of us, if you've uh, been in the church for a while, you're probably familiar with this passage. Um, your Bible may have a heading, um, workers in the vineyard or, or something like that. Um, so this is, this is a, a parable. Again, we all know what parables are, right? It, it, it's a made-up story to, to um, emphasize some important lesson. So then necessarily, when we look at parables, we have to be real careful not to, to, uh, to, to, to interpret them quite as literally sometimes as maybe uh, we would look at other scriptures. So in this particular parable, uh, I'll just do a quick summary, but I want you to keep your fingers open there to Matthew 20. So in this particular parable, uh, the story goes that there was a landowner who had a vineyard, and uh, apparently it was harvest time. And so early in the morning, the landowner uh, went down to uh, the marketplace to look for workers, to look for day laborers. And then, uh, so there were a group of men there, and he hired them and said, okay, I'll give you a daily wage. Head on out to the field, pick my grapes. Well, uh, now the day began, you know, it's one thing about first century Palestine. These people only worked half a day. I mean, from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Um, so at 9 a.m., the landowner went back to the marketplace and he found some more, more people standing around. He said, okay, you guys need a job? They said, yes. Okay, head to the vineyard. At noon, he went back, found some more, sent them out to the vineyard. At three o'clock, he went back, found some more, sent them out. At 5 p.m., he went back to the marketplace, found some more, sent them out to the field. 6 p.m., the uh, quitting bell blows, so uh, they come in to get paid. And uh, the landowner tells the uh, foreman, okay, pay everybody, start with those who got here last. Well, the guys that showed up at five o'clock got a full day's wage. 
So the guys that showed up at 6 a.m., they're getting pretty excited, thinking, wow, if this guy got a full day's wage, we must, we're probably going to get a bonus. And that was pretty exciting. Well, then the guys at 3 o'clock get paid. They got the same wage. The guys that showed up at noon, they got the same wage. The guys that showed up at 9 o'clock, everybody got the same wage. Well, then the guys that showed up at 6 a.m., they weren't too happy about this. It's like, wait a minute. We worked a whole day, and we get the same pay as this person who only worked one hour? Come on, that's just not fair. And uh, the landowner said, wait a minute. Didn't we negotiate that I'd pay you a day's wage if you worked? Yeah. Okay, well, that's what I did. And, and then he says something really important. He said, what difference does it matter to you what I do with my money? If I pay the guy that shows up at five the same as, as, as you guys, what difference does it make to you? And then uh, Jesus says to the disciples, and many of you probably have heard this little phrase, he said, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Okay, kind of, kind of an interesting comment there. Okay, so as we look at this uh, parable, whenever we look at parables, I, I think it's important, let's, let's look at what's going on in the story. Uh, who, who's the audience? Um, what's the, the dynamics? What's the context uh, uh, going around in this story. So, first of all, it's, it's unique. We find this parable, this parable is only found in the book of Matthew. You know, some of the parables, you also would find them in Mark or Luke and sometimes John. But this parable is only found in the book of Matthew. Okay, now we know that the book of Matthew was written for a particular audience. Anybody recall what that audience was? The Jewish, Jewish believers. So, so um, the author is very intentional about the Jewish customs, Jewish ideas, Jewish beliefs. And so um, the, the book of Matthew will contain more uh, stories and teachings that, that are specifically related to connect with those Jewish believers, to connect with their heritage, and or to challenge some of the, the theology that had been developed over the centuries. Okay, so that's what we have here in Matthew. Now, if we look back at Matthew chapter 19, what's the setting? What do we see here? Who, who is who's Jesus? You know, what's going on? Who's Jesus talking to? What's he been saying up to this point? There's a couple other great stories that, that we find in Matthew 19. You know, we, we find the story of when the little kids were coming around Jesus and the disciples were shooing them away. And Jesus said, don't do that. Let the kids come. And we find another story about uh, the rich young ruler and, and the, this individual came to Jesus and said, hey, what, what must I do 
to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. Oh, I've been doing all that. He says, okay, just go sell everything you have and give to the poor and follow me. So we have that story in here. And then just before we have the disciples saying, uh, because Jesus said, when this young man walked away, Jesus says, it's more difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to do what? Go through the eye of the needle. Okay, so, so Jesus says that and Peter says, hey, wait a minute, we gave up everything. Is our reward going to be even greater? And Jesus says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And then he goes into this, this story, this parable. Now, most of you, when you look at this, depending upon which Bible you have, I think that uh, there was a chapter break here at the wrong place. So chapter 20 really is a continuation uh, of, of, of chapter 19 here, where, where Jesus now is addressing Peter's comment. Peter is saying, hey, we showed up at 6 a.m., uh, we're working hard, we're some of the first people that have said, we get it, we're in. And Peter's pretty much asking, hey, you got a special place for us in heaven? Do we get an extra large mansion? Do, do I get two plates at the feast? And this is when Jesus tells this parable. So that, that's the setting that's going on here. So typically, whenever you see a parable, usually Jesus is answering some sort of question or, or is addressing some sort of issue. Jesus doesn't typically, doesn't just say, you know... Guys, I was thinking this morning, and let me tell you this story. Um, yeah, Jesus was a great communicator, but a great teacher. And, and one of the things that, that teachers understand is typically learning occurs best when the questions are asked. You know, we can present material, but sometimes, you know, it, it, it's irrelevant until a question is being asked. So, so whenever you see a parable, I think it's important, back up a few, few steps and see what is the question, what's the issue that Jesus is addressing with this parable? Because he does them for a purpose. So we look here and um, uh, so we see the audience basically is the disciples. Peter asked this question. Uh, there's this idea of great reward and, um, and this is what, what Jesus is addressing. So the other thing you begin looking at to understand parables, you begin looking at the, the different uh, metaphors and what they represent. So in this, in this parable, we see uh, the, the landowner. Now, who do you think the landowner represents? Who's that a metaphor for? Who, whom does that metaphor represent? God, yeah. God, the, the, in this parable, the landowner represents God. That one's pretty easy. Okay, 
Uh, who are the laborers? Or in this metaphor, who do the laborers represent? The individuals? Okay, question. Is this the general population of the world? Or is it something more specific? Believers. Believers. I, I think in this parable, we're... Um, the laborers are believers. It, it, it's in, in common vernacular today, be the church. So Jesus is addressing here uh, the laborers. Now, it's something, it's interesting about day laborers, you know, this idea of gathering in the marketplace. Now, that's not an uncommon uh, phenomenon. That was very typical. Um, at, some of you know I mentioned I, I, I grew up in the Phoenix area. During the construction booms, which there have been a few cycles in the Phoenix area, it was not uncommon if you were a contractor or foreman on a crew and you were short uh, workers, at 6 a.m., you go down to the local Home Depot because that's where the laborers would gather. Go down to Home Depot and, and you would, there'd be, and everybody knew it. In fact, I don't wanna go down a rabbit trail here. Some of these were not documented workers and the sheriff knew this as well. And so sometimes the sheriff would show up at Home Depot and that created another whole, whole issue. But this idea uh, of, of gathering to work was not an uncommon, uh, Sight in, in these days. You know, I was thinking about this, you know, day laborer. And, um, and, and they were paid a fair wage, a wage that would, would be sufficient for the day. Uh, I was thinking, I don't know why my, my mind kind of goes in different, really weird places. Um, so I was looking at some top 10 list, and I found this one kind of interesting the top 10 highest earning dead people. Okay, now, the top 10, think about that for a moment. The top 10 people that are dead, okay, the top one, now this, this was uh, for 2015, we don't have the numbers for 2016 yet. Michael Jackson made $115 million in 2015 who he outpaced Elvis Presley, who made $55 million. Now, how long has Elvis Presley been dead? <laughs> He's making $55 million. Okay, now, one of my favorite characters, or uh, individuals, you know, characters also, uh, Charles Schultz. You know, Peanuts, Charlie Brown, Snoopy. I mean, poor Charles. He only made $40 million dollars in 2015. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor. Now, some you guys probably, you're too young to even know who Elizabeth Taylor is, but Elizabeth Taylor made $20 million. Okay, <laughs> they don't even need the money. I mean, that this just isn't quite fair. And, and some of them are still voting, as Joe said. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, so, so we, so, 
you know, it's kind of hard my mind to wrap around this. We have uh, people who are dead or making a lot of money. Then we have people who are alive and want to work and barely can can provide a, a daily daily wage here. Um, okay. Anyway, th 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 this is um, this this is a common scene. This was not unusual. So as Jesus used this par parable, uh, the disciples would say, "Oh yeah, you know, I remember seeing that." In fact, they may have done that themselves when they were younger, do uh, a high school summer job or something. You know, they were. They were out doing this. Okay, and then the last metaphor, the first and the last. What do you think that might represent, the first and the last? Okay, if you're a believer, you're all going to be treated the same. Any other ideas on this first and last metaphor? He's looking for the last. I think that's a great point. We're going to come back to that in a moment. I think that's a great principle that's coming up here. Jews and Gentiles, who said that? Yeah, I, I think that's part of what's, what's happening here. See, in Jewish theology, remember this is the primary audience for this book. In Jewish theology, there, there were two themes that were very rampant about God's favor. The first one was, if you were a Jew, you naturally were favored by God. So therefore, if you're not a Jew, you are not favored by God. Okay? Now, this has been embedded for 2,000 years at this time. Um, the, the, this idea that because, you know, this goes back and they trace it back to, to Genesis chapter 12. When God speaks to Abraham, says, I'm going to bless you. So you might be a blessing to the whole world. I think they, they kind of get that. Um, but I think where they missed the mark somewhere along the way was the fact that it was for the whole world. So they, they continued to seek this blessing from God because I'm special. I'm God's favorite son. Uh, I'm entitled more than, than, than everybody else. So this, this theology is very rampant in, in the Jewish mindset. The other one has to do with wealth. In, in the Jewish mindset, um, God's favor often was seen in, in, uh, manifested in material ways. So there was this underlying thought that somebody who was wealthy must be favored by God. And if you're poor, uh, you got some issues. I mean, if you're God's favorite son and you were poor, I mean, and see how in their mind that this would, man, you must, you must have some problems. You got some sins you haven't, I mean, we see the whole story of Job, you know, played out many, many times. And in this mindset that the rich deserve to be in the first place and the poor at the back of the line. Do we see any evidence of that today? 
Does the church, anybody in the church think like that anymore? If you've been around for a while, and you may not want to admit, but you've probably observed people who had this mentality and, and or expectation. I mean, I, there are some, some churches that teach what, what uh, properly is known as called a prosperity gospel, meaning that if you do everything you're supposed to do and you're in favor with God, God is going to give you lots of money. Now, I understand what they're saying. I, I even can point out the scriptures that they typically use to justify this. But it's such a vast, in my opinion, misinterpretation of scripture and, and, and the narrative. Um, now, I'm not saying God doesn't care about us. I'm not saying that we don't need money. Uh, we live in a culture where money is a medium of exchange for goods and services. I'm not, I'm not saying that those things aren't important. Uh, I'm just saying that, that if we look at finances, if we look at our bank account to measure our relationship with God, we're probably going to have a little challenge there. That's not a biblical way to do that. So I think in, in this parable, uh, Jesus is looking at, at some serious um, bad theology that he's trying to correct here with the disciples. And th this idea of the first and the last. Um, you know, this first and the last... Um, I recall, some of you may recall, when you were in grade school, and uh, it was recess time, and you're going to play football or basketball or baseball or whatever. Typically, what, what happened? Um, at least in my school, and the, and the neighborhood I grew up in, you had the two best athletes, or two, whoever were the two best, they were the team captains. Then what, then what happened? They, choose, they chose. And who were the first ones typically to get chosen? Were the best athletes. And um, I typically was one of the last ones to get chosen. Now, everybody knew that protocol. You know, that's just the way it was. I, one spring day, and God's favor fell upon me, and um, I, without asking my older brother, um, I took his baseball glove to school with me, and that day, chose up, I'm still one of the last ones chosen, but I had a glove, and I don't know how it happened, but I ended up playing shortstop. Now... Any of you that have played baseball much, especially with kids, most of them are right-handed hitters. And when they hit, it typically goes right to the shortstop. That day, I was in fuego. I was on fire. Nothing got past me. Out of the three innings, I threw eight out at first base, and I caught a pop-up fly. 
I mean, I was, and because I bat left-handed, when, when I was at the bat, mine went over into, into right field, and I got on base. I was the hero. So guess what happened the next day when it came recess time? I was one of the captains. And you know, it felt pretty good. But then my brother found out that I had taken his glove and he took it back and he hid it. So now, well, I can just tell you the next day, I was one of the last ones selected <laughs> again. This idea of being first feels pretty good. I think there's something in our human nature that drives us to want to say, you know what, I'm special. We don't like being chosen last. It goes against, goes against our culture. I think it goes against kind of the, this, the, the selfish attitude that we have inside that says, I'm important. So when we look at this, and we look at this, this passage and we begin unpacking it, I think there's some lessons and principles here. The first, and the, the, here's the blank here, uh, the law implies that you receive what you earned. Man, I did great as a shortstop that one day. So I deserve to be a captain the next day. And that felt good, and that's right. And, 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 and it's just, and it's the way it ought to be. However, grace is based on who God is and not what I've earned. See, when we start evaluating our value and worth based on our bank account, based on whether we're chosen first on the baseball team, based on our position or status, at work, in the church, in the community. If we base our value and worth on that, we're missing the mark. You, you know what that term means, missing the mark? That's a translation. Paul uses the term amartizo, which means missing the mark. It's actually an archery term. Anybody shoot archery? You're missing the mark is letting the arrow fly and you didn't quite get it in the bullseye. That's, that's the term that Paul uses for sin. So if we, are, if we are using the law to measure our value and worth before God, we're missing the mark. There's something about grace. There's something about grace and again, if we have that popular definition of grace is the unmerited favor. It didn't earn it. Can you imagine being the worst athlete on, on the field and being the first one chosen? That's what God is trying to say here in this parable. This idea of grace that says you know what, even at five o'clock in the afternoon, you are so important, I'm coming to look for you. 
I don't want you to miss out. You are valuable and a worthwhile individual. I'm going to keep looking. This is God that says, I'm going to keep looking. I'm going to keep looking. It's five o'clock in the afternoon. It's almost the end of the day. But he's relentless. He continues to look. And fortunately for some of us, we were in the right place at the right time. And we got found. So this idea of grace is based on who God is. Not anything I've earned. Isn't because of my family name. Isn't because of where I live. Isn't because of where I work. It has nothing to do with any of that. It's all about God. You know, the interesting thing about this parable, of all the workers, no one was treated unfairly. See, when grace is employed, we should always expect surprises. You know, Tim Keller uh, wrote a book several years ago. Uh, one of my favorite parables is, is found in Luke chapter 15, um, called the lost son. Sometimes we, we refer to it as the prodigal son. Tim Keller wrote a book. He entitled it, The Prodigal God, The Prodigal Father. See, because the father didn't act the way we expected him to. He didn't follow the law. These people didn't deserve this. They didn't deserve the same pay. Wow, when God demonstrates grace, we need to expect surprises. When I was a kid, uh, we used to make jokes about uh, different, different people or groups that are going to be in heaven. Um, you know, some of those people who went to movies and went to school dances, I'm not sure they're going to make it to heaven. Uh, but we, we began saying, you know what, we just might be surprised who shows up. And by the way, God might have a band uh, going on while we're there, when we get there. This idea of surprise. When God steps into human history, when God demonstrates grace, we should expect surprises. Because we just can't put God in a box and say, okay, I got you figured out. You know, this idea of envy and the expectation of greater rewards seems to be a consistent attitude of the disciples. This idea of envy. Okay, how can Michael Jackson, it's just not right that he makes $115 million and he's been dead for, what, 10, 15 years? It's just wrong. It's not my money. Who cares? But see what happens when we begin to become envious? We began to place our expectations on how things should be done. And then we quickly want to become the judge and determine, here's what's right, here's, here's what's wrong. See, you realize that that's the temptation from the garden. This takes us back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3, when Satan said, really, did God say that? Okay, God just doesn't want you to be able to make decisions. 
So, so, so what happened here is the temptation was, I'm going to eat from the tree of knowledge. So now I can determine what's right and wrong. I can determine what's, what's good and evil. Friends, this temptation is not new. This is the same temptation from the beginning that we continue to wrestle with every day. If we're honest about it, I want to determine what's right and wrong. I continue to want to eat from the tree. Give me the apple so I can make the best decisions that I can. Instead of, let me be obedient. See, see the issue here isn't knowledge. The issue is trust. Am I going to trust God? Am I going to trust God that he makes good decisions? The three characteristics of God that are demonstrated in this parable is that God is just, God is sovereign, and God is gracious. The message that Jesus is continuing to, to attempt to teach, and the question I ask today, are we going to trust? Are we going to trust in the landowner who says, look, I'm going to treat you fairly? Am I going to trust in the landowner who does some things that really surprise me? Am I going to develop an envious attitude when I see how, how God works in other people's lives? Or am I going to be a disciple who rejoices? A disciple. See, the thing about a hireling is we often complain about our wages, about our work conditions, about how hard it is. A disciple rejoices. A disciple embraces because there's trust. There's trust. Now, I'm not saying we should go out and bang our head against the wall. You know, that, that's not what this parable is about to say we should live the most miserable life that we can. That's not an accurate interpretation here. What it says is, God is gracious. That as workers in the vineyard, it's up to us. Will we, will we develop this attitude of envy? Or we, will we continue to say, I trust? And you know what? That's a difficult thing to do. For me, that's a daily exercise. You know, Paul talks about us being a living sacrifice. You know the problem with the living sacrifice is, don't you? It keeps crawling off of the altar. That's me. Every day, my tendency is to crawl off of the altar. Rather to obey and say, I don't see it. I don't understand it all. I'm not sure where you're heading with this, but I'm going to trust. And the thing about trust is once we begin exercising 
we take these baby steps, we eventually uh, deepen our ability to trust. You know, um, one of the summer jobs I had in college was uh, construction. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. You can take a two-by-four. If I took a two-by-four here and laid it on the floor and said, Joe, I want you to walk this or, or, or you know, David, walk this. Most of us would get up here and just walk on this two-by-four, not have a problem. Okay, now let me raise it about five feet off of the floor. Eh, some... Let me raise it about 20 feet off of the floor and not many people, unless they've done it before, are going to say, yeah, I'll, I'll, get, I'll jump up there and do that. That's the same way with trust. See, I think God puts the two by four on the floor for us. Okay, let's take some steps. I can develop this trust. And then as we grow, as we mature, I think God continues to reveal and he raises that two by four a little bit off of the ground. So are you going to trust? Are you going to trust? Okay. God is good. God is great. The question is, will we put our trust in the God that we don't fully understand? Or are we going to continue trusting in the law that none of us can keep? That's the parable today. May God bless you. May the Holy Spirit continue to, to reveal to you himself in new and greater ways. Have a good day.